Well, every time I do one of these question platforms, I always worry, thanks, great, that there won't be enough questions. <laughs> and um, let me just, okay, that's a big one. Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. Okay, all right. So every time I worry that there won't be enough questions and that I'll just be up here trying to come up with questions that I would like to answer, which actually might be a great idea, it's sort of like worrying that there won't be enough food when Wes does a potluck, which I also do. There's not going to be enough to eat. And then, of course, there's always enough to eat. There are always enough questions. So we will see how... Well, I am able to get through all of these. And I want to just note, because I do love the opportunity to receive questions and to answer them, that Melissa Sinclair and I are both starting a um, monthly sort of open question time. So um, I think it's during the day on Thursdays, uh, bring your own lunch. I'm the second Thursday of the month, and she's the third Thursday of the month. Or that's totally not right. I don't know. Um, check the calendar. But... Uh, Anyway, keep an eye out for those, an opportunity to come and talk about what you're thinking about these days, what you'd like me to do platforms about, what questions you have about Wes, really anything, just an open opportunity for conversation. So there are some good questions in here, and I just had three more doozies sent to me. Was that from the chorus? Thanks so much, everybody. Um, Let's see, the first one that I wanted to address actually I think was probably inspired by the chorus's opening song this morning. It's last says, last time I fell in love, I felt like a fool. Is that normal? Yes. <laughs> the answer, that, that was easy. Yes, it is. It actually makes me think about the sort of intense vulnerability that almost any kind of love requires of us, not just falling in love. We think of that romantically, sort of falling in love. I've been thinking a lot recently about um, friendship and sort of the, oh, thanks, and, um, <clears throat> and that we're not going to get to all of these guys, um, and the devaluing of um, friendship in our society in some ways. We focus so much on romantic love, sexual love, sort of partnered love, and, and don't think as much about the importance of friendship and, and love. But that itself requires a kind of vulnerability, and you can actually fall in it. You know what I mean? Fall, have you ever had that experience meeting a friend, a new friend for the first time, and sort of falling in love with them in a, in a platonic way, right? I think of um, Anne of Green Gables um, and the bosom buddies concept. Um, that always spoke to me, or kindred spirits. You know, you are my kindred spirit. Um, so yes, I do think it's quite common to feel like a fool when we first fall in love. And, um, and it's because it requires so much vulnerability from us. It requires putting ourselves out there in, in one of the deepest ways possible. And that relates, I think, to two other questions. Um, the first of which is, how do you love people who don't love back? Boy, that is a question for the ages. And I, I think of it in a couple of different ways. I, I think ultimately it gets to the importance of sort of detachment from outcome. That Buddhist concept um, practice, the idea of um, having an emotional response or, um, or a thought, but being detached from how it will play out with another person. Um, and so when I think about loving someone who won't love me back, I think sometimes there are times when that can be 
I don't know if appropriate's the right word, but, but can be done healthfully, right? When you can say, I love this person, I know they're not capable of loving me at this time. And so to be able to, to love them in a healthy way, I have to detach myself from the hope that they'll love me back, right? That I'm simply giving a gift of my love to this person, aware that they're unable to return it at this time. I think, though, it's hard to do that, and, and so oftentimes what's, what's more healthy is to figure out that, in fact, because that person isn't able to return the love, it may not be sort of worth your investment of love in it. So it's, it's whether or not you're able to, um, to have enough detachment to say, I love you as a gift with no expectation of return, um, or um, to say, actually, I, I require mutuality in this relationship, and because you aren't able to offer it, I'm then going to try to do the healing that I need to do myself to detach myself, not from outcome, but from the emotion that I feel. I don't know how possible that is to detach ourselves from emotions, but I think that we can, over time, begin to integrate them into ourselves in a different way, to understand them and, and how those emotions exist within ourselves in a, in a new way as we see sort of the formation of the relationship that's actually possible for us. So detachment, that's my answer for that, which actually relates to a question, is mindfulness selfish? I thought that was a great question. We talk a lot about mindfulness um, at Wes, and of course the, the popular culture talks a lot about mindfulness, you know, centering, meditation, walking meditation, coloring books, my personal favorite, all the different ways that we can um, achieve uh, an experience of mindfulness, which is essentially a sense of presence in the world, knowing that we are where we are and we are centered in that space, aware of what is happening around us, right? That, that would be a simple understanding of mindfulness. So the question, is mindfulness selfish? To me, it, it makes me think about some of our, um, I think, sometimes misconceptions about that detachment I was speaking about earlier, um, the kind of detachment that you need if you're going to love someone who isn't able to love you back, um, detachment from outcome. I think sometimes when we imagine that detachment from outcome, we think about um, a, a sort of a total detachment from the world, as though if we practice mindfulness enough and we're able to detach from outcome, you know, we, we no longer have attachment to what happens next, um, we're okay, we're able to welcome whatever is, that that means that we actually don't care about the rest of the world. And that's where I, I sometimes hear that idea of selfishness coming in, thinking about mindfulness, that we're so detached that we no longer have a connection to the world around us. There are a couple of... Um, major forms of Buddhism as it's been practiced over many centuries. And, um, and one of them does relate a little bit more to that idea of the most important thing being your own mindfulness, your own ability to uh, reach a state of total mindfulness to then break the karmic cycle and achieve nirvana, right? We, know, we sort of know that concept popular, popularly, the concept of nirvana. But there's a whole other section of Buddhism that says that what's important is actually 
bringing all people to that state of connection, interconnection, and mindfulness. And so that if you achieve it for yourself, all by yourself, but you don't bring in and create a society where others can achieve it as well, you've only gone half as far as you should have. You need to go the whole way. It is, in fact, about the community. To me, that's the the antithesis of selfishness, that kind of mindfulness, the kind that, um, that invites other people to join you in a sense of centering. And then finally, I would say that one of the things that mindfulness does for us practically is it allows us to be um, less reactive in our emotional states and our relationships, Um, right? It allows us, when something big and hard happens, it allows us to respond from a relatively centered place. And I actually think that that is the, uh, again, sort of the opposite of selfishness. It that ability to respond less reactively means that we are able to be present for others and for the situation and the needs around us. We are more centered and emotionally clear people, which allows us to be present for other people in deeper and stronger ways. Um, and then invites, it sort of, so it becomes kind of a cycle, it invites them to respond less reactively as well. So, no. Is mindfulness selfish? No. Short answer. It's not. This was the other question that I thought was related to that one about loving someone who doesn't love you back because it gets at um, some of the hard parts of relationship. Someone asked, how do you reconcile accountability and forgiveness? Accountability and forgiveness. I actually think right in the question is the beginning of the answer, the awareness that in our relationships we are so often looking for both. In our personal relationships, in our public relationships, relationships that we have with, with political figures or with, um, with you know, leaders of, of, of communities that we're part of, accountability and forgiveness. I'm not sure that there is a formula for how to reconcile them, but I do know that both are important. I think actually about our um, staff agreement. The staff um, many years ago created uh, an agreement, a covenant for how we wanted to be with each other. And we speak specifically to this issue, to the importance of forgiveness and um, offering forgiveness to each other, and then also the importance of accountability. Um, with one another. So holding someone to standards of behavior. And I think that goes for the whole community as well, right? It's a model for how we in a community want to treat each other. That we want there to be standards of behavior. We can't just, you know, yell at people and call them terrible names. Um, And we also want there to be forgiveness when we mess up because we will, right? Because we're human beings. That we need to hold those two things in tension. I find that the behavior piece is particularly helpful there. That accountability is in particular around behavior. And forgiveness can be offered more broadly for the whole person. Sometimes we talk about the inherent worth of every person, how core that is to ethical culture, the worth of every single person. And that, I think, is where forgiveness takes us. We believe in the worth of every person. It is inviolable no matter what they do, how they behave. They are still worthy. And so, therefore, we are able to forgive them, to give them opportunities to try again. And yet, at the same time, especially in a community like ours or in a family, 
we have behavior expectations. We expect that people will behave in a certain way. And that's where sort of the accountability comes in. So I do think, I think you need both. And I wish there were an easy formula for reconciling them. Two-thirds accountability, one-third forgiveness, shake, mix, add sugar. There were three questions. Well, actually, no, I think that's a separate question. There were three questions that were related to me. How, let's see, how do we hold on to hope when the view ahead seems bleak and our country is falling apart? How do we talk to our kids about hope and justice in these times? And then this one gets straight to the point. The arc of the universe bends toward justice. Isn't that just a myth meant to comfort us social justice progressives? (laughs) Maybe. All three of those questions speak to the experiences many of us are having right now. It's been a difficult time these past two weeks to be away from this community in many ways, to be away from the community in which I try to make sense of events around us. And as we have seen the violence and hatred in Charlottesville and in other cities around the country, as we've seen some of the policy decisions that Ellen held um, close during our bell chiming, during our ringing, the pardoning of Sheriff Arpaio, um, the official memorandum from the president around transgender uh, military service members. It is indeed a time when I look ahead and feel bleak. And I love that quote, the quote that the final questioner refers to, that the arc of the universe, uh, the, it's, it's a quote from Theodore Parker that was then quoted by Martin Luther King most famously, that the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. I love that quote. I think it's entirely possible that it's a myth, and I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. That quote and the idea behind it are important to me to keep putting one foot in front of the other. And I think that's how I would answer the first couple of questions about how we keep hope and about how we articulate hope to our children. Um, I often go back to a study done many years ago about children growing up in traumatic circumstances and um, looking sort of at... um, It was a longitudinal study looking at outcomes for those kids. What helped them um, as they grew up to to succeed in life, to to, um, be able to kind of rise above those circumstances. And what came out of that study was that children whose parents were involved in resisting the, um, the, the bad things going on around them Parents were involved and who invited their children to join them in that had the best outcomes long term. And, um, and I think about that both with our children and also with ourselves, that I know for me when I feel least hopeful um, and most bleak about the future, I know that I need to turn my attention to see who it is that I can help where I can put my feet and my hands and my voice, whatever tools that I have available to me, 
my emailing tools, my calling my representatives tools, my working in local small ways tools um, to try to make change. And it's related to that moral arc piece, right, for me, because although it may be a myth that the universe is really bending, what I know is true is that it certainly won't bend unless people are reaching up and grabbing it down, right, and bending it themselves. Um, That image was um, offered to me a couple of years ago by, um, uh, I think it was Bart Worden, the um, director, executive director of the American Ethical Union, the idea of reaching up to the universe and pulling it. And so that, to me, that's what helps me to move forward, to know that people can be part of um, that arc part of changing it, part of bending it, so that the myth can become a reality because we are able to make it so. Now, it still requires a kind of big leap of faith, right? Because I can't change the moral arc of the universe by myself, and none of you can individually either. Even this whole community can't by itself, or any single community that we might be part of, that we might organize with. It requires a large leap of faith that humanity writ large will, um, will move forward in that more beautiful way, will bend the arc slowly. I was having a conversation online with a West member, um, just a Facebook thread back and forth, and um, she reminded me of the concept of extinction bursts, which has been very helpful as we've gone through this recent sort of spurt of... Um, Uh, I would say, more visible hatred, xenophobia, racism, misogyny, homophobia, transphobia. Um, I don't think that there's more of it than we've had before, but I think it's been given permission to come up to the surface, to be shown fully, um, given permission to, um, to march in the streets without hoods, right? No need for masks. And so the idea of an extinction burst, the flare up of something before it finally dies is helpful for me. I don't know, again, if it's true, just like I don't know if the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice, it might be a myth, but it's a myth that I cling to, a story that I tell myself so that I can keep working and have the strength to pull it and bend it. And that's what I tell my children too, the stories of all of the people who have reached up and bent the universe. So this was an interesting question, and and I actually think it, it gets to the heart of ethical culture. Is it unethical, the person writes, to wish for something horrible that was underlined to happen to President Trump. (laughs) So I'm going to address this a little bit more broadly. (laughs) Is it unethical to wish that bad things happen to people that we see doing wrong in the world? People with power doing wrong. So yeah, probably. I do think so. I do think so. 
I think it gets to that, um, that accountability and forgiveness question again, right? A little bit. It gets to that core piece of ethical culture that insists on the worth of every person. And relatedly, the importance, sorry guys, the importance of, um, it's not easy. It is not, that is true. It is not easy. This faith is not easy, Julie said. That is right. So, so it gets to that balance between the inherent worth of every person, which is a core tenet of ethical culture, of our faith, of our values and philosophy, and the reality that we work for justice, and because we work for justice, we also have certain behaviors that we find unacceptable, and that we organize against and fight against policies that we find unacceptable, that we organize against and fight against. And I think the ability to hold intention, the fight against those policies, which sometimes means moving people out of power, right? Um, getting them out of the ability to do wrong and to do I would say, evil in the world, while simultaneously in some tiny corner of ourselves holding on to a belief or at least a wish that we could believe, right? A wish that we could believe in their inherent worth as a human being. And I think that distinction can be helpful. We can't actually always believe it just right now. <laughs> But we can wish we could get there. We can know that that's the goal, that that we believe in the worth of every person, including the ones that we see doing great harm in the world. It doesn't mean that their behavior is okay. It doesn't mean that we won't organize and fight against their work, against their positions, against their policies. But to know that even at the same time we try to hold that they are still a human being, and that they therefore have an inviolable worth. In fact, I would say that people that we see doing deeply unethical and wrong, immoral things in the world, things that work against the flourishing of humanity, things that work against love and the power of love in our lives, I would say that they are themselves um, unable to see and hold their own worth, right? It often helps me on a much smaller level when I know people personally and they're behaving in ways that are really, really difficult for me to understand to try to see the larger context. What might be going on for them in their lives? Can I understand why it is that they're acting out in this way that I won't tolerate as a behavior, right? I might draw lines and say, well, then you can't, we can't have a relationship if you behave this way but that I can begin to just understand human to human where that might be coming from. Now, when we're talking about big public figures, we don't always have the ability to see the whole context, but we can still apply the same principle. Again, so that we can hold on to our wish that we are able to believe that they have inherent worth. <laughs> you know, that that remains an important goal of ours. And I think ultimately that helps us to be fully human ourselves, to hold on to that sense of worth. So yes, I'm sorry. It is unethical. However, it's totally human to do so. Um, but keeping the wish to believe in the worth until, until the belief can be true for you, I think is key.
Let's see, I had a, a couple questions I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put there that I'm going to send an email letting someone wanted to know what happened with the, ple- the quest for extra pledges at the beginning of the summer. That is a great question and as a reminder that I need to send an email from the stewardship team telling everybody. So we'll let you know sort of what happened with that. Um, we got halfway to our goal, basically, is the short answer. So we were able to do some of the things we wanted to do for next year and not all of them. So great job. Um, this was a great question. Has the culture of Wes evolved? I'm going to give myself about three more minutes, so we're not going to get to all of them. But has the culture of Wes evolved over the last few decades? If so, how? I am, so I am starting my 10th year here. This Sunday begins my 10th kind of program year. Isn't that wild? So I could not comment on the culture of West evolving over the last few decades because I wasn't here for it. But of course I hear the stories about how things have changed over, let's see, few decades. That would be, let's say, 30 years. How many of you were here 30 years ago? How many of you were here 20 years ago? Much more, yeah. Yeah, so ask them. I know that things, that there have certainly been changes in the culture of Wes over just the nine years that I have been here. Um, Some of that has been because the community has changed, the makeup of the community has changed, it has grown. Um, As you saw from that show of hands, there are many new people here who were not here 30 years ago or 20 years ago or 10 years ago or even five years ago. Um, the generations represented here have changed somewhat dramatically in the last nine years. So we have significantly more people from the Gen X generation and the millennial generations than we had 10 years ago. And that brings in different ways of being and different understandings and simply different experiences in the world. Um, and, and, and I'm sure in, in other ways, the who we are has changed The what we do has changed somewhat, although many of our traditions we have been doing in often pretty similar ways for 10, 15, 20 years. um, I've mentioned this before, but a few years back I got the chance to watch a video that was um, uh, made in the 1980s Uh, interviewing three of the founding members of the society, including the first leader, George Beecham. So they founded the society in 1944, and they were interviewed in the 80s, reflecting on their experiences in the 40s and early 50s at the Washington Ethical Society. And what struck me, actually, was how similar what they described was to how I experienced our community now. The language was different, of course. People in those days were talking perhaps about civil rights. They weren't talking about um, anti, anti-racism in the same way, right? Language changes. But they cared about structural racism in our society. Um, the, the exactly what things looked like, where we were was different. We were in a building in DuPont Circle in those, um, in those years. Um, but, 
but who we were on a fundamental level was so similar as they talked about the kind of people that found their way here, what they were looking for, a place to raise their children with um, ethical values, with a grounding in moral values, um, with different stories. When they talked about what it was they talked about and cared about on Sunday morning, and in particular when they talked about how everybody came in about five to ten minutes late for platform. And I just thought... (laughs) There is a DNA (laughs) in our society. So it's remarkable. You get the same feeling when you read the Articles of Incorporation, which were written in the early 1940s, that um, the ones that are filed with the D.C. government. um, And they describe what it is that we are trying to do. And it it is very similar. You would recognize what they say um, with, with who we are today. Um, so I don't know, maybe that's more the core values and not the culture. I think that would be a great conversation to have with those folks who were here 20 years ago and 30 years ago. How has the culture changed and how um, has it evolved and how is it wildly different? We are at time. Boy, these, were, these are good. Um, I'll try to answer some of these on my Facebook page. Um, if you'd like to get answers later. So if you're not a Facebook friend of mine, friend me. I will always say yes to you. I won't come and hunt you down if you don't want me um, to be your Facebook friend. I understand. Um, But I thank you for these great questions. And um, what I love most of all about the question platforms is that it gives me an opportunity to hear what it is that you are thinking about and wondering about. For me, platforms are at their best, a kind of conversation. And so I want to encourage you to send me these questions all year to ask me, won't you do a platform on this or couldn't you incorporate this question we are wondering about as you look at the programming in the year ahead? It is such a gift to serve a community that has such great questions and that gives me an opportunity to answer them. Um, and to know that ultimately we will seek the answers together.